one, I Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the chair and co-founder of I Relaunch, and your host for today. Today, we welcome Catherine Salmon, author of Ambition Redefined, and who has a long history of leadership in the women and workspace, spanning return to work, flexible career paths, and more. Catherine and I go way back. Catherine co-founded the Women at Work Network in 2002, one of the first companies focused on helping women return to the workforce. And when we were doing our book research in 2004 to 2006 for Back on the Career Track, Vivian Rabin and I attended one of the Women at Work Network's first Back to Work events, and I still remember it. So Catherine, it's wonderful to have you. Welcome to 321 I Relaunch. Oh, it's great to be here, Carol. You know, I've always been a big fan of iRelaunch. Well, likewise. So I, I was saying earlier, I'm just so excited that we're on this call. It's just really uh, been many, many years. And the two of us have watched and participated as we've gone in well, you know, into the recession and come out again. And now we're in this full employment economy. And it's sort of a perfect backdrop um, for talking about um, all of our topics today. And before we get into uh, financial security and uh, different types of career paths and, and your book, Ambition Redefined, can you just give us a little background and um, talk to us about your career path, uh, where you started, and how you ended up to where where you are today? Okay, well, my career path really started when I was uh, a young girl. Um, I am of the Mary Tyler Moore era, and I wanted to be Mary Tyler Moore. And so I've been very career-oriented from a very young age. And uh, when I graduated from college, I worked for a big accounting firm. And um, after that, I worked for Institutional Investor Magazine. And in both of those situations, as a, as a young career professional, I was watching the other women around me. And I would see a lot of women who were really pushing hard with their careers suddenly kind of morph into a different person when they got married and had children. And oftentimes they would leave. And so I was observing all of this and I've always been a big plan ahead person. So when I was at Institutional Investor, I decided um, I had recently married and I decided that we wanted to have children at some point. And I knew, because I was Mary Tyler Moore, that I <laughs> always wanted to work, um, but I, I had to start planning ahead. I had to start thinking about, you know, I'm not going to be able to work at Institutional Investor if I have two or three kids, um, because that was a job that required a lot of late nights and a lot of traveling around the country to various events. And so I said, probably the best way that I'm going to have uh, flexibility is if I start my own consultancy. So very early on in my career, I was probably just about five years out of college at that point, I left Institutional Investor to start my own marketing consulting firm. And 
I, with the idea that once we decided that we wanted to have children, that I would be established and, you know, I would be able to uh, work from home and have lots of flexibility. Hold on. That's pretty interesting because you didn't make that move once you were on career break. You made that move way earlier before you had any kids in anticipation of, a, of not a career break, but a time when you would want more flexibility. Absolutely. And in fact, we didn't have children for five years. And so I was working on building up that consultancy for five years before we had children. So that was a, you know, a really terrific way for me to continue to work when our first child was born. And I then, um, you know, I kept that business going. I was very successful. I had a lot of connections because of institutional investor. I, most of my clients were uh, asset management firms. And I continued on with that until one of the founders of institutional investor asked me to, he had left and asked me to start a publishing company with him, a different one. And so then started a different entrepreneurial venture where, from scratch, we started a company um, that was publishing um, custom books for the institutional investment community. And so that was a little different because I wasn't calling all the shots. I was, you know, this sort of the second in com command, but then it turned into uh, hiring people and managing lots of people and managing a growing business. And so that became, you know, much more complex, much harder to retain my flexibility. And just as a, an interesting anecdote, we were at the time trying to have a second child and it wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. And it was an extremely high stress job. I finally decided to leave, and um, a month after I left, I got pregnant. <laughs> wow. Um, but anyway, so I went home uh, to my home office and then started up my, um, my consultancy again, which um, was not hard to you know, start up again until 9-11 happened. And then uh, Wall Street was so, you know, badly hit, you know, literally and, and figuratively that um, all these clients, I never had to market my services. All these clients started taking all their work inside. They weren't hiring as many consultants. And so um, I had to start thinking about, well, what else am I going to do? Because I didn't really want to do, um, you know, I, I had to work. That was just, that's in my DNA. So at the time I was talking to a woman who had, um, a, a tremendous number of events in New York city for women who want to get off the fast track and helping them rethink and reinvent. And she wanted me to bring those programs out to Connecticut. And so I was thinking about it, but then I thought, you know what? Wrong audience. Everybody I know out here is trying to get back in. They're not trying to get off the, the fast track. So I kept thinking about her model 
And I said, well, maybe I could do this, but for the women who want to get back in. So with a, a partner, uh, we created the Women at Work Network, and it was a series of events. We called them Opportunity Knocks, and we would help women think through all the psychological, logistical, financial, you know, all the things that you have to think about in returning to work. And so that went along really well. And then it turned into that we were recruiters and we were trying to get these women um, back to work. Uh, and so I did that for 10 years. And then when the, with the downturn of the economy, it was very hard to keep up the recruiting part of the business. And so I decided that I was going to leave that company I had co-founded behind and, and kind of cool my heels for a while and figure out what I was going to do next. And, and so at that point, I knew I wanted to still continue to help women, but in the 10 years that I had been working with women, one of the things that I noticed is that it was very difficult to just say that women are either working or not working. I saw that there were lots of shades of gray and, you know, women working often had one foot out and women not working often had one foot in. And there were all these different phases that, that women would go through. So I decided to start a blog called Nine Lies for Women. And this was my effort to turn my type A brain off for a while. And, and I remember just, this well. I remember Nine Lies for Women. Yeah. And so I, um, you know, I started writing this blog, which, and I consider myself a writer first and foremost. So, it, and it was something that I could never have really done at Women at Work. Um, so I just, you know, wrote and, and said, I'm just going to see where this goes. And I continued to coach women and then um, decided that I was going to write this book, Ambition Redefined, because I was so aware that so many women still feel that there's or still believe that there's only one way to work in the very traditional full-time job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's get into some of uh, your thinking, your more recent thinking and what you talk about uh, with Ambition Redefined. You're fairly vocal about women. Uh, you're warning women not to take career breaks and you know, understanding we have an audience where a lot of people are on career breaks. Some people are contemplating career break. There are some employers who, who are listeners. Um, can you tell us why you feel so strongly about not taking career breaks? And then after that, I want to get into more about um, what you think people should do instead. Sure. Well, I mean, I really am putting my stake in the ground and saying that women should always work. And I realize that that is controversial in some circles. Um, so if you're contemplating a career break, I say, you know, be very careful and look before you leap and don't just think about, you know, that you might be fairly comfortable financially today because you never know what could happen tomorrow. And for the same reason, I ad always advise women who have taken a career break 
to get back in as soon as possible. But the, but the caveat is that I'm not suggesting that anybody has to have a 60-hour-a-week corporate job with a long commute and tons of overnight travel and you know, seeing your kids for two minutes in the morning when they get out of bed and two minutes before they get into bed at night. I, what I am saying is that I believe for long-term financial security that women should always be working in some way that fits their life. And that could be, for some women, that could be uh, a couple of freelance projects a quarter, or it could be, you know, a, a job that is three days a week uh, while your children are in school. But I, I think that it's, it's difficult to, to recoup um, what you lose financially when you leave. I have seen, um, you know, women continually tell me, I'm just going to leave for a couple of years. I just need to get things in order. And, and then I'm going to come back. Well, in my anecdotal data, women leave for an average of 12 years. And every year out, you give, you give up up to four times your salary. So that's, that's 144 paychecks that are not earned, saved, and invested. And that's, mm. a, that's a lot of money to, to give up. And the other reason that I feel so strongly about this is because life has many twists and turns. Life has so many you never knows. And as a career coach, I've often felt like a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. It's a fine line. Yeah, because I deal with so many women who are blindsided not only by the things that we all think about, like divorce or a husband loses a job and doesn't recover or husband gets sick or, you know, the things that are obvious, but there are other things that, that none of us are really thinking about. For example, that our parents are living longer than they ever thought they would. And even if they were affluent at one time, by the time that they get to the point where they need help and then it gets to around the clock help, even the most robust savings start to dwindle really, really quickly when it's, you know, $25 an hour in a lot of, you know, areas of the country. Yes. So my, I, I'm saying, you know, you insure your cars, and you insure your house against fire. You need to insure your financial security by some kind of work that fits your life. Well, thank you for that. And I want to get into a little more detail around your discussion about um, social security. And if you are doing just a few freelance projects a quarter, how does that work? And so we'll get into that in a minute. I, I do want to comment on um, that uh, the anecdote about you know people saying I'm just going to be out for a couple of years and then being out much longer. I, Vivian and I wrote about this in back on the career track because we also encountered it. People feeling like I'm just going to take the short career break and I think we write and then all of a sudden like Rip Van Winkle, you wake up and ten years have gone by and and you you like hardly even noticed it and then it, then all of a sudden you're out for a really long time. You know our focus has always been we've never put 
any kind of a value judgment on why people take the career breaks. We usually work with their on career break. How do we get back to work? So we, we kind of start from that vantage point. But I do think that it's valuable for people to go in, especially those anticipating career breaks, eyes wide open. Um, you and I have both had conversations, um, and I, I think you wrote in your book about um, Michael Matowitz's uh, uh, calculator that calculates the cost of a, a, a career break, uh, and uh, that we did a separate podcast on that. Just I'm just going to tell our, our listeners, uh, and just to you know understand what you're getting into financially if you do make that decision. Before we go any further, I just want to remind our listeners that you're listening to 321 I Relaunch. This is Carol Fishman Cohen, your host, and I'm speaking with Catherine Salman, author of Ambition Redefined and a real leader in the uh, work life and women in work space. And Catherine, I wanted to get into a little bit more detail about this um, topic of financial security uh, and what you um, what women should think about early in their career to preserve financial security later. And maybe when you're talking about that, can you touch on the whole topic of social security benefits and how people who even who do freelance work manage to collect later, how, how it impacts social security later on? Well, um, I mean, just taking the um, the financial security piece, um, one of the things that that women don't realize is that you forfeit your eligibility for Social Security if you don't have 10 years of earnings credits. And 10 consecutive years or 10 aggregate, 10 aggregate years? years. Um, and so, I mean, there are a fair number of women, certainly that I've encountered, uh, who you graduate from college or business school or law school or graduate school, whatever. Um, they work for a couple of years, they get married and they don't go back for, for a number of years. And so they may not at, you know, at a certain point, they may not have amassed, uh, 10 years. And even though the social security system is in peril, um, I go into in my book, um, you know, some sample calculations about how Social Security can still be a significant piece of your of your total retirement savings. So it's it's not something to just you know scoff at. It, you you really should be very careful that um, that you are going to get those um, that those benefits. Um, but as for uh, thinking ahead, I mean, I gave the example of of how I was thinking ahead, and I was I was thinking at you know at some point I'm going to want to have children. I want to have more flexibility. I think that all young women who are in college or graduate school really need to be thinking about what career should I choose that is likely to have flexibility down the road? Now, I've met very few women who've ever told me that they don't um, want to have children. You know, very, very few. Um, I know that women do exist, but uh, that, you know, don't want to have kids, but it's, I think it's the minority. Um, so, but even if you don't want to have children, 
every single one of us is a, um, a daughter of parents. So the other thing that, that women tend to forget is that we don't have just one caregiving job. We have two. And just as caregiving job number one starts to wind down, caregiving job number two starts to wind up. And a lot of the time you're doing both in that middle period. So you women really need to be thinking at the outset there's no way around the fact that I'm going to have one or two caregiving jobs. And when those caregiving jobs are happening, I'm going to need flexibility. So let's think carefully about what kind of industry that I'm, I'm going to get into. Now, I mean, 80% of employers today across industries have some kind of flexibility. And that, that can vary, you know, tremendously. But, you know, if you want to be an investment banker, for example, you're not um, going to have as much flexibility even today because it's very, let's say you're, you know, doing a lot of deals. It's very difficult to say I'm only going to work two or three days a week or I'm only going to work these hours when there's a big you know, major deal going on. Um, and, but it's, it's easier to, uh, to be in a marketing role, for example, or an advertising role, or, you know, some, some of the finance roles. Um, but it's, it's just thinking it through and saying, you know, what, what can I choose that, when I need the flexibility, I'm, I'm more likely to get it. I mean, the, the interesting thing is, is that flexibility is showing up in many unusual places now. Like for example, for example, I know of a very fine eye surgeon who works three days a week. I know an anesthesiologist, um, who works three days a week. Um, but you're, you know, generally speaking, there's going to be less, uh, flexibility in medicine than, you know, some other areas. Right. But I like how you point that out with medicine. We've seen doctors, um, do some pretty creative, um, thinking and, uh, take creative actions. Uh, we've seen them be, you know, the camp, summer camp doctors. We've seen them be, um, the doctor that is the overseer, um, by phone or text of nurses who go into people's homes. Um, and then we've seen doctors who can do some kind of a shift work, which I think sounds like what you're kind of alluding to with, with your two examples, whether they're working at in student health services um, a few days a week um, or they're in emergency medicine and they literally work a shift. Uh, so we, we are, it's interesting to see um, some of those variations now um, in a field like medicine. Are there any other fields that jump out at you that you would say to take a closer look at um, for, when advising younger professionals who are trying to do this kind of analysis you're recommending? I mean, I, th I think that, that pretty much across the board, um, you know, there is going to be a flexibility. You just have to think about the, the professions that really require you to be 
in the office because of, you know, deal making, like I was saying, or, you know, I was talking to a group of women who um, are scientists and they were saying that it's difficult to have flexibility when you have, you know, different experiments going on. You can't disappear for two days while these, while these experiments are going on. You just, you really have to think about the nature of the work and think about, you know, could a good portion of this be done remotely? And, and that, that's really the, the acid test. And also to, to talk to as many people as you can with, you know, what I call networking research that everybody should do whenever they're looking for a job to really get the, the insider's perspective. And the other thing, not speaking specifically about certain industries, the other key tip for everybody about flexible work is that flexibility definitely goes up as company size goes down. So the more that you um, explore opportunities in, you know, midsize and smaller companies, you're, fi- you're going to find more flexibility. That's a good tip. So um, really broaden your search to, to look at companies that may have less visibility. It's harder to find some of the smaller and midsize companies. They're less well-known, but it's good, um, great advice to search them out um, because they may have give you more leeway or, or offer more flexibility. You know, it's interesting that lab work example that you give. I remember um, when at some point during our book research, we ended up talking to a pretty famous scientist who was running a lab. And I remember her saying, I don't think it's any different to have women in my lab who are splitting their time between their lab work and being at home than to have men and women in uh, our men too um, doing that, or then to have men and women in my lab who are splitting their time between the lab work and let's say a clinical practice. They're still not in the lab certain times of the week. And for some reason, it felt like the doctors who are making the split between their research and their clinical practice that was somehow more accepted than the people who were simply working part-time in the lab because they were home the rest of the time. So I'd like to think that that has evolved somewhat. And still, fundamentally, if you're in the middle of an experiment and you have to be on watch, um, then it doesn't matter what else you have to do. You still have to be in the lab. But I just thought it was kind of interesting, too. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Um, Catherine, let me ask you this. For people who are already working in corporate environments, you know, there's this emphasis on uh, leadership training, especially for women to get them on pathways um, where they can advance. And you have said um, that uh, you don't believe leadership training addresses the needs of all women. Can you talk about that in more detail? Sure. I you know, I think that it's great that um, the corporations are doing so much leadership training for women, but they're they're treating women as a monolithic group. They are. It is all about grooming women um, for higher and higher leadership positions, so that there are more women at the top. And you know, certainly, I feel that more women need to be at the top of corporations. Um, but the caveat is the ones who want to be. And there are an awful lot of women um, who are 
very talented, uh, very ambitious, very smart, uh, very well-educated, who do not have um, the personal bandwidth, uh, primarily for caregiving reasons, to be shooting for those top jobs. And when there's so much rah-rah about getting women to the top, it can make a lot of women feel very out of step. And I have coached um, many women who have left um, these corporations because they they just feel like it's sort of an all or nothing situation. You either you know you're either on that bandwagon to get to the top, or you're sort of invisible. And so I I really strongly feel that corporations uh, and employers in general you know, they're very focused on uh, diversity now and diversity of gender and uh, and diversity of culture. But I, I think what they really need to start focusing on as well is diversity of ambition. Mm-hmm. Because there are, you know, very valuable women who want to make a big contribution, but they want ways that they can basically grow in place. They're they're not hung up on the fact of whether they, you know, they get to a certain point. They want to make good contributions. They want to continue to develop their portfolio of skills. They want opportunities to have more exposure. And so I think that leadership training kind of has to have a you know a, a two-track um, and I don't mean like, you know, one's on the mommy track and, you know, you know, one's on the, uh, on the fast track. I just mean that you have to recognize that there, you can be a leader at, at, at any level and that you make very valuable contributions at every level and, and like it or not, women are dealing with these two caregiving jobs. So it, you are, you know, it, you're just putting your head in the sand if you're not recognizing that a large percentage of women are not trying to be CEO. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, and I'm glad you're putting it out there in that way. Um, actually, your book came out in a uh, beginning of October, I think, of 2018. So it's just been a few months so how has it been received and what's been happening since the book was released? Well, so far, um, it has been received very well. Um, I've been, you know, around talking to lots of media and, and lots of different groups. And I think that um, when I was speaking to um, WCBS radio, uh, the host started out by saying, Catherine, I think you've written the book that we've all been waiting for, but we didn't know we were waiting for it. (laughs) And, um, and I think what she was, was driving at is that, you know, what I am saying is kind of giving women a voice to admit that they don't want that CEO job. They don't have to get the C-suite. They don't have to break the glass ceiling. You know, we get, as women, we get fulfillment from, you know, many different areas of our lives. So 
you know, it, it's not the be all end all for, for many women to, to be at the top of a, of a corporation or the top of, of government. And women are very afraid to admit this. Um, it's not the kind of thing that they discuss with their boss, obviously. And they, they won't discuss it with colleagues often. Um, but I'm seeing it all the time as a, as a coach. And I'll, I mean, I'll give you an example. I have a, a, um, a client who's in her early forties, has two young children. She's working for a top 50, uh, a top fortune 50 company. She, uh, managing billions of dollars, thousands of people. And part of her job takes her abroad, uh, once a month. And so she was sitting on the plane recently and she said, oh, and, and P.S., she also um, went to uh, two, well, well, she went to an Ivy League undergrad and in an Ivy League, uh, she got an Ivy League MBA. So she's, she, you know, got all the things of being a, a high flyer. And so she, um, she's sitting on the plane and she said, what am I doing she said, I can't do this anymore. She said, I never see my kids and I do not need this job to validate who I am or that I'm ambitious. She said, I have got to find some other way to channel my energy, my ambition, my everything else, because this is just way too one-sided right now. And so there's a woman who you would have thought I mean, I'm sure that the people, her boss and the people in, you know, her colleagues would probably be thinking she's bucking for the CEO job. I mean, she's, she was on that path, but she's been, you know, and so she was asking me, well, what can I do instead? You know, what are you thinking? What do you think I, um, I should explore? And as I was telling her things, she was saying, you know, my only concern is that I don't want to be perceived as a lightweight. And so, you know, there is that, you know, she doesn't really want to talk about it, but as you know, she's gotten over that and she's, you know, headed to have her own consultancy. Um, but you know, my feeling is that, you know, a lot of the women that go full steam ahead in their careers, um, it's often before they're married or it's often when, until they're, you know, first married and have their first child. Um, and then by the time the second child comes along, <laughs> it all starts to change. Um, and that's just a reality. Hmm. Interesting. Well, um, we're actually um, at time right now. And I want to ask you the final question that we ask everyone, all of our podcast guests, and that is, what is your top piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that you've already mentioned in our conversation today? My top piece of, of advice is always find the work that fits your life for long-term financial security and the ability to fund all of life's you never knows. Mm, very good. That's a, gr a great place to leave it. Um, Catherine, can you tell us how our audience can find out more about your work? Yes. Uh, on my site, um, there is information uh, about my book and my blog, um, and also my consulting to corporations, and that's www.catherinesolman.com. 
Can you just repeat that one more time for people and spell Solomon since it's unusual spelling? Sure. It's Catherine, actually. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N, S is in Sam, O-L-L-M-A-N-N. Excellent. Thank you. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it was great to be here. Thanks so much, Carol. You've been listening to 321i Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, chair and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. For more information about iRelaunch, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on iTunes and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.